Chapter Three. To the observant eye, the human soul shows everywhere its anxious condition, no matter how carefully it may try to conceal it. The whole human race swims or drowns in a vast sea of anxiety. The existence of insurance companies, which offer protection against most of the hazards of life, bear witness to this. And everywhere we see other evidences of mankind's anxious condition. A million methods of distracting our attention from this condition are offered by entertainments presented on television, radio, and theatre, and by sports, holidays, and so on. Everywhere we are offered escape from the contemplation of the real human situation. We have fallen into the great ocean of anxiety. How we fell into it is told in the book of Genesis. We fell with our first ancestors' disobedience of God's command: "Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil." Our first ancestors ate of this fruit and fell. We are eating the fruits of their failure to understand why God gave that mysterious command. Man's understanding is limited by his sense impressions and the reasons he bases on these. He is not equipped to know what is for his ultimate benefit. He cannot tell what finally will be good or evil for him. So far, he has tended to view pain as an evil and pleasure as a good. We have seen that bait can hide a hook; that the fierce monster guarding the hidden treasure may be only a lifeless stone figure. We need to realize that our life must be based on something other than desire to gain pleasure and avoid pain. We need faith. That God has a purpose for us, which might require us for a time to face certain unpleasant facts and forego situations that seem to offer pleasure. The fact is that the pursuit of pleasure and the attempt to avoid pain often result in failure, and where there is a degree of success, it is seldom complete. When it is complete. The gain is often followed by a loss, even if we could guarantee permanent pleasure and permanent freedom from pain. We would not necessarily gain in depth of soul or character. The merely pleasure-filled life does not encourage one to desire self-control, self-responsibility. Total freedom from pain might easily lead to thoughtlessness. An unawareness of higher human values. The little child who runs without thought through the grass may bark his shins against a concealed rock and be brought suddenly to self-awareness. This self-awareness, first produced by a pain, may be the beginning of the generation of an individual with unique characteristics, products of thoughts which, but for the pain, Might never have arisen. Pleasure tends to de-individuate us. Pain makes us self-aware. 
before God's first act of creation, the energy which now constitutes our being was in an uncreated state. It had no fixed center and no clearly marked circumference. It was not truly individuated. It did not know itself reflexively for what it was. Today, most human beings have some degree of self-knowledge and reflexive awareness, because the ancestors of mankind have suffered in some way that had forced them into self-consciousness. The Jews are a very individuated people because they have suffered centuries of persecution and painful dispossession. These are the conditions that the soul needs to make itself aware of before it can understand the meaning of the words "Christ, my anchor." The human race has disobeyed the principles of life laid down by the Lord of the universe. As a result of this disobedience, it has plunged itself deeper and deeper into error. It has displaced the service of truth and the freedom of the will, with enslavement to lies and bondage, to the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. In consequence of this deepening error. Man has become more and more a servant of the external, material world and the things in it. He has lost his awareness of his own personal freedom, and with it, has lost belief in the reality of his own soul. Masses of people today have lost faith in the value of their own being. They have accepted the theories of mechanistic behaviorists as truths. They view themselves as the materialists wish them to, as machines energized by calories, as motor cars are energized by petrol. They no longer look beyond the outer things of the material world for their salvation. They consider themselves nearly saved if they own their own house and the mortgage is not too high, and they have a refrigerator and dishwasher and a respectable car. Nearly saved, but not quite, for at the back of their minds is a disquiet, not clearly defined as such, but still there. Disturbing the depths of their minds during the day and their souls' quietness at night. Why do they feel nearly saved? These house-owning, car-driving people, because the owning of material things is not the final purpose of human existence. Material possessions have their place in a civilized community. But they are not man's final goal, and there is the fact finally of death. It is appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. A materialist who thinks of himself only as a kind of machine that gradually wears out and one day stops running, never to move again, has nothing to worry about after death. On his own hypothesis, he will not be there to worry. Annihilation is his final lot. But a man who thinks more deeply and knows that energy cannot 
be annihilated, but can change only its form, may have reason to consider the condition of this energy which has constituted his very being in life as it will be after death. Survival of the constituent energies of his being in some form is certain. The question is raised, in what form will he survive? Will he know himself as himself? Will he be able to take hold of his constituent energies and hold them together after death as he did in life? Or will he be unable to stop a process of disintegration that might finally result in the complete dissembling of his mind and all that in life he has centered upon? And what will be the condition of his soul if he has lost the reference center that served in life to give unity to his consciousness? For secure survival of physical death, we must have an unshakable belief. We must believe that the source energy, the basic power of all reality, has at heart the welfare of all its creation. We must believe that this source power is intelligent and loving and that it has a plan for us. This belief is the first step to the conquering of anxiety. We call this source power our Heavenly Father because Father means generative power and Heaven means the balance of power. It is this source power our Heavenly Father, who holds in his hands the destiny of all creatures, who is the origin of the certainty of our eternal survival. God, our Father, the generative power of universal being and source of our souls, has a plan, a purpose, which he intends to realize in us. He intends to bring us to realize the divine power which he has placed in our innermost center, the divine power which is the source of our freedom. But we cannot know ourselves to be free unless we are placed in a position in which we have to choose between alternatives. Freedom can realize itself only in an act of choice. The alternatives offered to us are of two kinds, eternal and temporal. The eternal is unalterable truth. The temporal is a changing form which tends to lead us away from this eternal truth and involve us in an unstable, continually vanishing event. The temporal is a temptation which is aimed to seduce us away from the true center of our being, wherein dwells our free will, into the false peripherality of the temporal distracted mind. God aims to lead men to realize their innermost power of free will. To do this, he has placed men inside physical bodies and given them space in which to move and choose. But in giving us this space and the bodies in which to move, he has placed us in a situation in which we may collide with each other, a situation in which our purposes may conflict, a situation in which we may make war on each other. 
We live in a world in which free choices may be made between alternative courses of action. We may love and help each other to live, or we may hate and strive to destroy whatever possibilities of life we have. Before creation, the energies which now constitute our being were not bound together as they are now. They experienced themselves as uneasy zones of awareness, not yet as formed being. Their anxiety was of the kind that arises within a zone of awareness, which is not yet sure of its own possibility of existence, and also not sure that if it should gain existence, it would do so in the way it desires. This is pre-creational anxiety, but after creation, when these energies have gained a sufficient degree of self-awareness, as they have in human beings, the form of their anxiety changes. Now it is a question of survival within our bodies, whilst we are living in them, and survival in our souls when we meet death. We have a fear of possible destruction of our bodies whilst living on Earth, and we are anxious about the possible destruction of our souls after death. What is destruction? It is unstructuring, the unbuilding of any being that has been built. Our physical body is built of packets of energy. Our mind is built of systems of ideas derived from perceptions gained from our senses and placed in some kind of order by our reason. A structure is needed to provide a stable reference center for our awareness. We need either a physically stable body, or a stable system of true ideas on which to center our ideas. Our physical body is our first stable reference center in the process. The second stable reference center we gain is a system of true ideas. Untrue ideas are not inherently stable, for they do not fit together correctly. And what does not fit properly together is doomed at some time to fall apart. All untruth is destined for disintegration, because some system of true ideas is needed to maintain a soul in balance, and because untrue ideas must finally disintegrate. The soul that aims at survival after death must learn to discriminate between truth and falsity. The death of the physical body is called the first death. The disintegration of a soul's reference system of ideas is called the second death. Those who understand the meaning of Christ, my anchor, shall not be hurt of the second death, because the first stable reference of consciousness is our physical body. Jesus Christ incarnated. God became man to teach us not to undervalue, not to scorn our physical body. If the physical body had not a use, Christ would not have incarnated in one. The thing we think of as our lowest part, the physical body, is the key to gaining 
and stabilizing of our highest part, our spirit. In order to realize consciously our spiritual freedom, we must first be embodied in a physical vehicle. We must be born of water and of spirit. Water is the Bible symbol of plastic substance, and fire is the symbol of free will, the power of initiatory activity. Thus, water symbolizes our physical body and our birth into time, and fire symbolizes our spiritual body and our birth into eternity.